Hello, today's podcast will return us to courses at AUA 2018. Today's course is the Management of Common Dilemmas Prostate Cancer Diagnosis, Staging, and Treatment. This is course 058 in your program, and I will turn you over to the course director now. Okay, well, um, welcome everyone, and thank you uh, for uh, attending our uh, instructional course entitled uh, Management of Common Dilemmas in Prostate Cancer Diagnosis, Staging, and uh, Treatment. Uh, I think you'll agree we have a s absolutely superb uh, faculty, and I'll introduce them. Uh, the first one entitled The Use of PSA in Screening and Prognosis of Prostate Cancer. Second lecture on novel biomarkers for prostate cancer. Third talk, uh, Optimizing Prostate Biopsy uh, and uh, Update on Prostate Imaging. And finally, uh, PSA and management of patients uh, with advanced uh, prostate cancer. Uh, we will have a question and answer session after each of those lectures. And if time permits, at the end, uh, some case discussions among the faculty and, of course, any case you want to bring up from the floor. Uh, I would put it to you that uh, all of our speakers are uh, household names. Uh, our first uh, speaker will be Dr. D'Amico well-known uh, professor of radiation oncology, we like him nonetheless, Harvard Medical School and Chief of Genitourinary Radiation at Dana-Farber. Our second speaker is uh, Adam Keibel, uh, professor and chief of uh, urology uh, at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, uh, also at Harvard Medical School. I'll be the third speaker uh, from uh, Washington University in St. Louis. And our final uh, speaker is Dr. Oliver Sartor, uh, the Laborde, is, did we pronounce the E? No, the Laborde Professor of Cancer Research and Medical Director at uh, Tulane uh, Medical School. So without uh, further ado, may I invite Dr. D'Amico to come and uh, start us off. Thank you, Jerry. So I'm going to uh, focus the comments, mostly on the screening aspect, because we have a paper in JAMA just a few weeks ago called the CAP trial. That'll be sort of the, the meat of the talk, but there'll be a few other things around it. I'll start just briefly with a, with a short story about five guys who were in a plane, uh, and they get a, a message from the pilot that the plane's in trouble, they need to, to get out. And so the, air, the uh, parachutes are, are sent down, and they sit there and they look at it, and they realize there's only four. And there's five of them, and it's the president, the vice president, the, quote, smartest guy in the world, um, a, holy, a holy gentleman, a priest or a rabbi, and then a little boy. And so the president takes the first one and jumps out and says, i got to run the country. i got to go. The vice president says, who are they going to come to when, you know, he's in trouble? So he goes. The smartest man in the world says, well, you know what? You know, who do you think they come to for advice? So he goes. And so the two are left there, this holy man and this boy, and the holy man says to the little boy, you know, I've lived my whole life, you know, I'm, I'm almost 75 at this point, that you should go, you're just a young man. And the little boy looks at the, at the, the holy gentleman and says, it's okay, we can actually both go. The smartest guy in the world took my backpack. <laughs> All right, so much for smart people. So these are the things I'll cover, PSA screening, you know, the level one evidence sort of to talk about. Um, whether to treat or monitor PSA-detected cancer, and then a little bit just about the genetic basis of personalized management, because there's a couple of interesting things there. You've seen this slide before. If you've been in this session, I show it every year, because I think it's still important. 
Essentially, it goes way back to a JAMA paper in 93 uh, from Jim Easton from Memorial, which basically said that, you know, if you have your PSAs over two and a half or four at one point, a quarter to half the time, if you repeat it, it'll be back to normal. We did the same study with PSA velocity. And the bottom line is I still think in this country, not the people here, but the internists, and whenever you speak to them, you need to make sure they understand confounders of PSA. They're all listed there. We all know them. The biggest one is ejaculation, bike riding, because I think with, with confounders, we actually can get PSA levels that prompt biopsies that then lead to, quote, clinically insignificant cancer. So this is an important slide in that it talks about the things that can go wrong in screening studies by no fault of anyone's. And the new information on here is essentially what's, what's listed in, the, in yellow. So we know the three major screening studies. Two have been talked about a lot, the PLCO and the ERSPEC, but now we're going to talk about CAP, which was just in JAMA a few weeks ago, um, which comes from the UK, which was the screening part of the PROTECT study. We know that uh, in the PLCO study, you know, this country, there was a lot of PSA usage, even in men screened, uh, randomized to the usual care arm such that, you know, the same proportion of people had at least one PSA test in the PLCO, whether they were randomized to screening or not. In ERSPEC, um, <clears throat> the contamination was much less. It was only about 15 percent, and non-attendance was, was not too bad either. It was about a third. The thing interesting about CAP, the CAP study from the UK was uh, the non-attendance, people actually randomized to get the PSA screening test, only got it a third of the time, 64 percent of people in CAP actually didn't have um, the PSA performed even though they were supposed to. And so what you see there, the screening interval and the difference in PSA testing, I want to just highlight it. In PLCO, it was every year. In ERSPEC, it was mostly every four years, some, some subsets every two years. And in CAP, it was just one PSA that they got between the ages of 50 and 69. It was a prevalent scan, just one. And what I want you to look down there in yellow, which is actually the new information since last year, is what's the difference in PSA testing between the two randomized arms in these three studies? And in PLCO, as I mentioned, 85% of people at least one PSA on both arms, so there was really no difference there. In ERSPEC, it was about half, 49% in CAP. I would have hoped it would have been higher, but it was 21%, mainly because of the non-attendance. And what you're going to see on the next slide um, is just a little bit of the results that got the U.S. Preventative Task Force just recently to change the recommendation from PSA screening from D to C, that is, don't do it, more harm than good to, to talk about it and have shared decision making. You know, several, about 15 years ago, we were at a B rating, which is more, more good than harm and do it. Then it went to C, then it went to D, now it's back to C. And what got it back to C is what's at the bottom there. The ERSPEC study at 13 years actually showed about the same hazard ratio, about a 20% reduction in cancer death. But the number needed to screen, which is what they look at, went from 979 down to 781, from nine years to 13 years. The number needed to treat from 35 down to 27. And that's 13 years. And we know that if we're a guy in his 50s who's gonna live 25, 30 years, that those numbers will just likely keep on getting better. That's what convinced them. The CAP study didn't, but I wanna talk about CAP in the context of ERSPEC because I think it provides some important information. Here's CAP. So this is new. This was just about a month ago published in JAMA. You know, about 400,000 men, median age 59, were randomized as shown, PSA screening recommended versus control, 
the median follow-up was 10 years, and there was absolutely no difference in cancer-specific mortality, as you see here with a p-value that's right in half of, half of one, and a, conf and a point estimate that's almost one. But what I want you to look at here, this was not in the main body of the paper, this table. This was all data that I pulled out of the supplementary file, which is where most of the interesting information is. And what you see in this prevalence scan, where you just did a PSA once, are some things that are fairly interesting to me. First, what you notice is that in terms of Gleason 6, compared to ERSPEC, screen versus control, you have less people who are being diagnosed with Gleason score 6 actually in both arms of the CAP study because you're just getting a PSA once. And so you're more likely when you get a PSA once to pick up what's called prevalent disease, disease that's been sitting there for a long time that you just happen to find. And that's what you see here. The Gleason 8 or higher cancers were much more prevalent in CAP than in ERSPEC. You also see that they're an older age at diagnosis. Even though they were entered onto the study at a younger age, 59, they were older age actually when they were diagnosed because older men are more likely to harbor occult prostate cancer. And they were, this was done later in time, much later study period for CAP as compared to ERSPEC. And that has implications on the actual results because when you do the screening studies later in time, when we have drugs like enzalutamide, abiraterone, apalutamide, Prevenge, all of these things that came later, you have better salvage therapy so people live longer. Now here's this, this, the important slide, probably the most important one of my talk. What you have here are three plots of prostate cancer-specific deaths side by side. ERSPEC on the left, CAP in the middle, PLCO on the right. And underneath that, I have the difference in PSA screening between the arms going from 50 to 21 to 0% roughly. And what you see is that as you get a bigger difference in PSA screening between the two arms, with the maximum being ERSPEC and the minimum being PLCO, that the curves split, period, they split, and they split earlier. So that in the ERSPEC study, where half, there was basically a 50% difference in whether you were screened or not between the two arms. You have a split here at about seven years, and that's statistically significant, as I showed you, with a hazard ratio of 0.79. Here in the CAP study, the curve split, but not until 12 years. And at that 12-year time point, you've only got 6% of the patients left, so there's almost no power left to actually measure a statistically significant difference across the whole curve. But the reason why I'm showing you this is it's fascinating that they split it all because there's a 21% difference in screening between the two arms, and it's a prevalence study with only a single PSA, but they do split. And so it says to me that while the study is likely underpowered to ever measure a significant difference, a single PSA between the age of 50 and 69 does appear to numerically translate into a benefit after about 12 years, with only a 21% difference in PSA screening between the two arms. I think it speaks very highly to the value of PSA, actually, if we think it through. If we had a curve here to the left of ERSPEC where there was a 100% difference between the two arms, screen, PSA, yes or not, it's very likely that these curves would not only split, but split even sooner. And that's why I like these three curves in tandem. Here, there's no difference in PSA screening. There's no split. Here, there's only a 21% difference. Splits late, later, but still happens. And here, it's splitting earlier. So that, you know, if you ask the question, if we just screen versus not, and we did it intelligently, that is, we diagnosed Gleason 6, low-risk prostate cancer, we didn't go into over-treatment mode, we just diagnosed it and put them at rest, 
I think that we would have a, a much better situation because this is the best screening data we have in terms of compliance and it splits at seven years. And if you just look at the shapes of these curves as you go from right to left, if we had a 100% curve over here, I think that we would even see even more impressive uh, characteristics for PSA. So in terms of how do we, I've said everything on this slide. So in terms of how do we think about who do we screen, you know, it's gonna be people who are healthier, younger, average or high risk. I think one thing that the US Preventative Task Force did very well in this most recent statement that they put out where they went to a level C, could discuss screening as opposed to D, don't do it, is they highlighted the fact that in these three screening studies I just showed you, there are essentially no high-risk patients. African Americans are not present. And so they actually say in their statement that screening should definitely be discussed with high-risk populations like African Americans, and they also talk about people with a, with a fa family history with a first-degree relative. So I think that, you know, we're, the pendulum is starting to shift back towards thinking more seriously about the use of PSA. Of course, there are going to be better markers. We heard about the ISO PSA, you know, uh, from Dr. Klein on Friday, and that is validated now, and I'm sure that uh, Jerry and Adam will probably talk about it in a little bit. So there's going to be, there probably are better markers, but I still think, just based on what I showed you, PSA is not a bad marker if used properly. All right, this is the, so I have to show one slide on this. This was in the New England Journal. This is a randomized trial. It was a non-inferiority study of MRI trust fusion versus trust biopsy. I think the investigators were actually brilliant in making it non-inferiority, because non-inferiority requires a larger number than superiority. They had 500 people in this study. You'll see who was enrolled, median PSAs in the six and a half range. Only 15% of the patients were T2, so this is mostly T1C, so this is a population that we see. And what they found was that, um, in terms of clinically significant prostate cancer, 12% more likely to find it with a confidence interval that went from four to 20 with the, trust, with the MRI fusion trust biopsy, as opposed to with just the standard 12 cores, and less likely to diagnose Gleason 6. And so it, it obviously was not non-inferior, and they did a post-randomization superiority analysis and actually showed that this was superior. And so this other point down here is who are the people, you know, who are at high likelihood of having clinically significant prostate cancer? The PIRADS 4, 60%. The PIRADS 5, 83% had, had at least Gleason 3 plus 4. So what my, to my mind, what this says is that if you've got PIRADS 4 or 5, that, you know, a, a targeted biopsy of that area makes sense. The one thing that's not on this slide that you need to hear is there were people with PIRADS 2 and 3 who actually did have clinically significant prostate cancer that this, that this misses. So but the MRI is not perfect. It misses about 20% of clinically significant disease. But here we have randomized level one evidence that when you compare it just to a random 12-core needle biopsy, it's better. And so I do think it needs to be thought about seriously in terms of future practice. You know, in Boston, what's happening now is people are coming to us, they get a PSA, it's elevated, they get an MRI, and then they get a fusion biopsy. And so it's, it, they're skipping the, the actual, they get a fusion plus a 12 core, but they're skipping the step of PSA, 12 core biopsy, and then if it's negative, think about an MRI. We said that many years ago here, the last few years. Now it's going PSA elevated MRI and then fusion biopsy. I'm not saying that's happening with everyone, but we're seeing it more and more. All right. So now, um, I'm just going to spend a minute on PROTECT because it's been around now for a year and a half, but you know that this is level one evidence comparing surgery to radiation short-course hormones versus active monitoring, favorable risk patients. 
You know the results of, of the study, which was that it showed essentially that if you monitored as opposed to if you got treated, there was a doubling of the metastatic rate, six versus 3%, but no difference in cancer-specific death, about 1% in each arm. What I want to do, though, is just make the point I've made before, is that in that study, they didn't report difference in metastasis. And I would bet that like in the other two studies where they had basically watchful waiting versus surgery, that there probably would be a difference in metastasis even in PROTECT. And the reason why I say that think that's important, and I'll skip through this because this is stuff you've seen before, is because of this. This is new uh, this year. I did a power consideration in PROTECT. And what you've got in PROTECT is 550 people per arm. And so you observe 6% METs and 1% prostate cancer death at 10 years. If you use your standard power calculation of 80% power to see a 50% reduction, a hazard ratio of 0.5, to, for METs, from 6 to 3%, you'd only need 370 men per arm. But for cancer death of 1% at 10 years to go down to 0.5%, you need 1,500 people in each arm. Even though PROTECT was a huge study, it's not power to see the difference in cancer-specific death that might exist in it given the low rate of 1% at 10 years. Now, you can get more power as time accumulates, but I, I estimated that it would take another 10 years of follow-up before you would actually be able to measure a significant difference in prostate cancer death with PROTECT between monitoring and treatment. But you can measure a difference in METs already. And 10 years sounds like a long time, but to a 50-year-old, 10 years is not a long time. 30-year data would be much more relevant to a 50-year-old where the METs could be 18, you know, versus 6% at that point. And so what you're hearing from me essentially is that I think we have to be very careful about how we think about monitoring certain men. I just sat in a session, you know, and from 1 to 3 o'clock where they showed some data, Gleason six people with very low risk or low risk prostate cancer who went to surgery and despite reassurance with a multi-parametric MRI, still 35% of them had Gleason 7 prostate cancer. And so I think we have to be careful in terms of how we think about, you know, who we monitor with low risk or very low risk disease, certainly unhealthy, elderly, et cetera, but young and healthy, especially African Americans, I'm not so sure. This is the last thing I'll show you here. I think this is interesting. So we know from Larry Klotz's data where the profile was very similar to PROTECT, except they had some uh, they didn't have any four plus threes, PROTECT had a few, that there was a 5% distant metastatic rate at 10 years, PROTECT, obs protect observed 6%, so they're very similar. And so if we look at the intermediate risk group, three plus four, the favorables, um, which had a 10% distant metastatic rate at 10 years in Lori Klotz's data, and then we look at the very low risk from Hopkins, it had less than 1% METs at 10 years. I'll show you something interesting on the next slide. Just keep those numbers, so from Larry Klotz, we had 10% distant METs at 10 years, 3-4, and very low risk, less than 1% at 10 years. So here's this, this is a calculation of what, what do you think the 10-year distant metastatic rate would be then if we use PROTECT data and the data I just gave you. And so we had a 6% rate of people who got METs in PROTECT, right, at 10 years if they were monitored. And that 80% uh, of those people in PROTECT were low risk which have about a 1% rate. So what do the other 20% have? And you can calculate it, it'd be 26% if you just do the math. If we know three plus fours have a 10% risk and you assume a sp even split 
between three fours and four threes and protect, you come up with a 42% rate of Mets and four plus threes at 10 years. Why do I do all of this? I do it just to make it clear that you know, some sixes really are three fours and some sixes really are four threes, much more likely three four than four three. But those distant metastatic rates, even with monitoring of PSA, are quite high. So it says, one, we shouldn't be monitoring sevens unless the person really has a shortened life expectancy. And two, we need a better way of figuring out who with six has seven. Because even with MRI uh, and with, um, you know, biomarkers, it's not perfect. So I'm going to stop there, uh, and we'll go on to the next uh, presentation. Thanks for your attention. some questions uh, after each presentation so uh, any uh, questions or comments uh, from the audience I was wondering what your thoughts are uh, nowadays on uh, PSA velocity prior to uh, diagnosis and PSA density uh, should we continue to look at those or now that we have 4K scores or PHI uh, and other tests, uh, are those uh, outmoded? So the PSA velocity and density are only as good as making sure there's no confounders. I think that was one of the biggest things that I showed you on the very first slide. If there's no confounders, um, then what I would purport is testing them uh, in a, an analysis that's multivariable against those markers that you're going to talk about in a little bit um, and that Adam's going to talk about because I, my guess is that they may not have, it may not be one is superior to the other. They may actually provide complementary or different information. And the only way to test that is in a multivariable analysis. So I, would, I wouldn't, since they're free, they don't cost anything, right? The PSA is, is already part of the workup. See if it, if it adds something, and if it doesn't, then they're outmoded. But if that hasn't been tested yet. The Europeans are still following patients, particularly the Rotterdam uh, subgroup. Um, the PROTECT trial, I'm not sure. We can ask Freddie when we see him whether the money is available for them to continue following. I hope so. Yes, but it did, it did show a benefit in reducing mets. Metastases, yes. And I think that's that that... Smoking gun. Right. I think that actually is right. That's important because 6 versus 3 at 10 years could be 12 versus 6 at 20 years and 24 versus 12 at 30 years. If it's just linear, it may not be... I mean, I think, when I think about screening, I think about a 50-year-old. And when I think about that, that's 30 years. And those met numbers, if they multiply by 3, could be quite substantial. Thank you, Anthony. Now, before um, uh, Adam gets started, you can come up. I'm, I'm going to ask a question. Uh, we don't have audience response this year. If you have a biopsy-naive man with an elevated PSA, how many people order an MRI? Show of hands. How many people get a 4K score before a biopsy? How many people get PHI? How many people get select MDX? Okay, 
Let's go back. Uh, you have a patient persistently elevated PSA. He's had a negative conventional truss biopsy. How many people would uh, get an MRI? Lots more, lots more. So how many people would get a 4K score in the uh, previously negative biopsy space? And PHI? Okay, it looks like... Uh, yeah. We'll see if it changes later. I've got it okay, all up here. I know. You got it all up there. Well, I think it's a little artificial sometimes the distinguish, distinguishing between MRI and, and, and biomarkers because I think at some level the MRI is a biomarker. It has the added advantage that you can target something. Okay, so my job is to evaluate the novel diagnostic and prognostic tests associated with patients who have an elevated PSA or, uh, or have had a biopsy that has shown cancer. So these are my disclosures. The only one that I think is really important is MDX Health, which is in this biomarker space with select MDX and confirm MDX. So uh, every year I go and I, and I put down all the different uh, biomarkers that are available. Every year it gets longer and longer. I now have to add ISO-PSA to this list. Uh, and that tells me two things. First thing it tells me is there's clearly a need. We all want a better PSA. We want a better way of identifying the patients who have cancer from those who don't have cancer. It also tells me that none of them have uh, proven to be a huge benefit because otherwise one would win out very quickly. Uh, so, uh, you know, back in the day, things aren't getting better. Back in the day, uh, we had a bunch of biomarkers and essentially when you went from screening to diagnosis, well, you could use PSA, that could be helpful. And, and then when you diagnose the patient, you're trying to figure out how to treat them, well, you could use PSA. And then after you treated them and they had a positive margin or you were worried about them, well, you, you could use PSA. And then when they had metastatic disease and it was, the PSA was climbing, that was the biomarker you had as well. It was one size fits all. Am I doing an okay job? You're doing great. Okay. I think he needs to start the clock, otherwise I'll talk for hours. Uh, and, uh, but now it, it's actually better. So we have multiple different markers in that screening to diagnostic space. Uh, for patients that uh, we're trying to figure out uh, how to treat, we've got multiple different uh, biomarkers, Polaris and Oncotype. Patients who have abnormal pathology, we have uh, good markers there, uh, specifically Decipher. Uh, and then I'm not going to talk about these, but we actually increasingly have markers in that advanced disease space that can be helpful in terms of choosing uh, the right treatment. So I'm going to go through these uh, with urine markers, serum markers, and then uh, uh, tissue markers. So let's start with the urine markers. Uh, so PCA3 uh, is, uh, I think, was really, I guess Fiscore was probably the first of the market, but clearly PCA3 was the first urine test of the market. It's a non-coding RNA. Its expression is restricted to the prostate. Uh, first identified back in 1999 by uh, Marianne Busmacher, who was in Bill Isaac's lab at the time. Uh, and expression is markedly elevated in patients that have tumors. And importantly, it's independent of prostate volume, age, BPH, and prostatitis. You have to do an attentive DRE. That's where you push very hard, sweeping from base to apex. And you catch that first urine when the patient uh, uh, pees. I mean, the idea is you're pushing the, the MRA out into the urethra, and then you're catching it when the patient pees. And it's actually a ratio. So uh, this was the trial that actually uh, caused it to be approved by the FDA. Uh, roughly uh, two to 300 men who underwent a first biopsy, the same number who had a second biopsy. These were men who had an elevated PSA. There was an indication for a biopsy. As we go through all these, you realize none of these are replacing PSA, they're augmenting PSA. About a third had a positive biopsy. This is an area under the curve where you can see here is PSA right here, not much better than a flip of a coin. 
okay? And then uh, here you have uh, the PCA3, and here you have a, a, a complex uh, 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 equation that improves the area under the curve a little bit. And the more the test moves this way, the more you move towards perfection with perfect sensitivity and specificity. So an area under the curve that's about 5.47 is terrible, okay? An area under the curve that's point seven, uh, you know, point, I think that says 7.5, that's much more reasonable. Uh, we love it to be, we like a yes or no answer. Our patients like a yes or no answer. But just like PSA, all these tests suffer from the fact that the higher the value, the more likely you are to have prostate cancer. The lower the value, the less likely you are. So here for a, PS, uh, a PCA3 of less than five, very low risk. PCA3 of greater than 100, very high risk. So uh, this is a nice trial done by John Way, because what we really want to do is identify the aggressive cancers. So close to 1,000 men, some with initial biopsies, some on, on repeat biopsies, 11 centers across the United States. So there was a little bit of uh, heterogeneity in how patients were being managed. Uh, and uh, what you can see is that not only is the test associated with an increased risk of prostate cancer, it's associated with an increased risk of aggressive cancer. So you have PSA of less than 4, 4 to 10, and then greater than 10. And you see you have various uh, PCA3s, tertiles, within that group. And as you can see, as you increase your PSA and as you increase your PCA3, you're more and more likely to have prostate cancer. Importantly, the black is the likelihood of having aggressive prostate cancer. So here, if you have a PCA3 of over 60 and a PSA over of 10, you not only have a close to 100% chance of having prostate cancer, you have almost 100% chance of having Gleason 7 and above. And it didn't work quite as well for patients with a repeat biopsy, but you can see the same trend. This is FDA approved. It clearly correlates with the risk of cancer. I think it likely correlates with the risk of aggressiveness. And I think patients with low PCA3s can, you know, potentially be spared a biopsy. ExoDX, so exosomes are small fragments of cells that are shed and float around in the, uh, in, in the blood or in the urine. Uh, and this was a very nice study by Jim McKiernan where they went ahead and isolated these exosomes from the first catch urine. So again, the attentive DRE is important. Uh, and, and looked at several different uh, uh, genes, including PCA3, but added two additional ones. And they correlate, they look to correlate with the presence of Gleason 7 cancer or greater. Again, that's what we want to find. We want to find the cancers that are going to cause our patients to uh, suffer harm. So they trained it in about 200 patients. Again, patients already set to have a biopsy because they have an elevated PSA. None of them had a prior biopsy, and then they validated in a second cohort. And again, you can see the Kaplan the excuse me, the area under the curve here. You can see that PSA actually worked better in this study. But as you add uh, the different variables at the, and, and you do the full test at the end, the area under the curve uh, increases to about uh, where is it right here? 0.77. And that's the gene expression plus the standard of care. So the standard of care is PSA, age, prostate volume, the kind of things that we use right now to try and decide whether a patient should have a biopsy. Uh, with a threshold of 15.6, you'd be able to avoid about 20% of your biopsies, and you'd miss only 2% of Gleason 7 cancers. And none of the cancers missed with the 4 plus 3s that we worry about the most. I mean, I worry about 3 plus 4s as well, but 4 plus 3s, I think, are, are incredibly worrisome. Select MDX. Uh, a similar uh, assay with an attentive DRE, again, a first catch urine, and they're examining mRNAs this, uh, this time for 
Hox C6 and DLX1. Uh, and, uh, very similar cohorts, 519, and then a validation cohort of uh, uh, roughly 400. Again, elevated PSA. I can't emphasize this uh, enough. These are not tests that are used as a primary screening tool. They're used as a secondary screening tool. Uh, about a, a, a th fifth of patients had Gleason 7 or higher, and this test is designed, again, to look for Gleason 7 cancer. So again, here we have the area under the curve, and what we're really getting better and better here. So for cohort one and cohort two, this is the, the initial cohort and the validation cohort, you see with a select MDX, you're getting an area under the curve up around 0.9. Remember, perfection is 0.1, is one, okay? So that's pretty good. And it clearly does it better than our current uh, standard of care, which would be something like the prostate cancer prevention risk calculator, where you punch in data on age, size of the prostate, PSA, uh, et cetera. So what about serum markers? So uh, the Phi score uh, combines various different isoforms of PSA. It's a blood test. I kind of like the blood test better than the urine test. The main one is a practical one. Uh, if I'm thinking about it ahead of time, yes, I'll do that attentive DRE, get the sample. But sometimes I'm not. I go ahead and do the digital rectal exam, and then afterwards I have to have the patient drop their pants and do a second rectal exam. I won't lie to you sometimes, and I think, look, I've already done this once. Let's move on. Uh, but other than that, I think that's the main advantage to these studies, these tests. So this is the original one. Bill Catalona did this study. This is where it got FDA approved. Uh, close to 900 men, no prior history of prostate cancer, normal rectal exam, a PSA between 2 and 10, 25 percent of the patients had prostate cancer, and an increased score correlated with the increased risk of prostate cancer. So again, that same, you know, phenomenon. The higher the Phi score, the more likely the patient is to have prostate cancer, but at a low score, you could still have cancer. And at a high score, maybe you don't have cancer. But still, you can avoid biopsy of 25% of men if you use a Phi score of 25 or less of saying, look, I'm just going to follow this guy. It, it has been associated. There have been studies now that have looked to see whether it's associated with risk of aggressive disease. So this is a rather nice study done a few years ago where, again, patients with a normal rectal exam and a PSA between 2 and 10, Again, about a fifth of them had Gleason 7 cancer, and they did it again in a validation court with maybe a little more Gleason 7 cancer, and they looked at the, the score and its relationship to risk. And I think the key thing here is right here and here. So in the primary cohort and in the validation cohort, if you had a Phi score of less than 20, only 2% of those patients in both cohorts had Gleason 7 and above. So you can feel comfortable if you use a low threshold that even if the patient has cancer, they're not very likely to have Gleason 7 and above. So it correlates with risk of cancer, I think it correlates with risk of aggressive cancer, and potentially patients with a low Phi score could be spared a biopsy because they're not only less likely to have cancer, they're less likely to have aggressive disease. 4K score. Now this is a, a little more complicated. It's an algorithm that includes patients' age, the digital rectal exam, and the previous biopsy status, and then incorporates a panel of uh, four known markers. Again, it's a blood test. And, 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 and the group developing this test, I think, has done a very good job of partnering with uh, uh, other studies to look at clinically relevant populations in large populations. So this is the PROTECH study, which we've heard an awful lot about in terms of screening and in terms of treatment. And they went ahead and looked at roughly 6,000 patients in the PROTECH trial that underwent a 10-core biopsy. Roughly a third had higher-grade disease, and two-thirds had lower-grade disease. They modeled it in two-thirds of the population, then tested it in, in the remaining third. They didn't have nice figures, but you can see the area under the curve. They at least gave us the numbers. And you can see if you look at any prostate cancer, as you add variables, 
And finally, with the, the, the best one, using age and the panel of, of, of the calocrine markers, you get a, a area into the curve of 0.7. Pretty good. But when you're looking at high-grade prostate cancer, you actually get at, at, at the top end, when you add all the different variables, you get a, 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 a figure of 0.82, which is pretty good. Not as good as the select MDX, which got to 0.9, but that's pretty good. So if you model this out and you say you use a threshold of 6% and you biopsy, normally biopsy 1,000 patients, roughly a, a half of them would no longer require a biopsy. And the cost is that you'd miss about 14 high-grade cancers. Now, that doesn't mean those cancers wouldn't be diagnosed at a later date. It doesn't mean they're going to die of cancer. It just means at that point in time, you wouldn't diagnose them with a high-grade tumor, which makes me a little nervous, but I suspect that many of those would be diagnosed at a subsequent point in time. Uh, they went ahead and tried to look for lethal disease. They looked at 40,000 men who gave a blood sample and got put in a freezer and was just left there and for essentially forgotten about, okay? And then they went back. It was done for a different purpose. It wasn't done for PSA screening. It wasn't done for prostate cancer. And they went ahead, and then 15 years later, they went back and they found roughly 12,000 of these men, many of whom who developed prostate cancer and some had actually died of metastatic disease. And what they were able to show is if you use the 4K score, you might be able to identify the men who actually were at risk for dying of cancer. So overall, this green curve is all men with a PSA of greater than 3. And you can see that roughly 10 percent of them will develop metastatic disease. Now, if you use that 60-year-old, remember, it, it's more than just the 4K score. They incorporate other variables in there. So if you have a 60-year-old with a, a, a 7.5 percent risk, 62 percent of the, uh, that's 62 percent of the population, okay, and roughly 15 to 16 percent of those patients will have died of prostate cancer. In, in contrast, if you have a low uh, score, 4K score, which makes up roughly a third of those patients, it's only about 1 to 2 percent. So I think that's important data that tells us that not only are we diagnosing the Gleason 7 cancers, but the patients with the low risk are less likely to ever die of their cancer. So it's not FDA approved, but it clearly correlates with the risk of cancer, correlates with aggressiveness, and it, it, it increases the likelihood of a Gleason 7 to 10 cancer. Uh, patients with low 4K scores could be spared a biopsy, whereas those with high 4K scores, in my opinion, should definitely be biopsied. If you have a high 4K score, that data would tell me you want to know what kind of cancer that patient has. And I actually worry an awful lot about the patients who have a high 4K score and then I don't find cancer. I follow those patients. Those are not the patients that I send back to the internist to say, go ahead, check a PSA every year. Those are the guys that I continue to follow closely. Tissue markers. Confirm MDX. So this is patients who had an elevated PSA and had a negative biopsy. And they analyzed three genes for methylation, GST pi, APC, and uh, uh, RASF1, okay? All important in, in uh, cancer biology. They, in the Matlock study, they looked at roughly 500 patients who underwent a primary biopsy and then a secondary biopsy. Remember, you're looking at the initial biopsy, the initial biopsy that was negative. And they correlated with cancer on the second biopsy. They found it a good sensitivity, good specificity, but most importantly, a very high negative predictive value. So 90% of the patients who had no methylation of any of these genes did not have cancer. So you can feel safe if the patient has a negative score not doing a biopsy. So this is the kind of test you use to talk yourself out of a biopsy, okay? It was validated in a second uh, study done by Alan Parton, clearly correlates with risk of cancer. There's not really any data in aggressiveness. They're doing those trials now, uh, and I think it'll be very interesting to see if it does correlate with aggressive disease. I think it's clearly a rationale for not repeating a biopsy.
Polaris. So this is, a, again, these are studies where we're looking at tissue. We're looking at the biopsy. These are patients who have been diagnosed with prostate cancer, okay? Not patients who have an elevated PSA and have a negative biopsy. Not patients who come in for the first time. Patients who you know have cancer. And you're deciding on the primary treatment. It's a 31 gene signature. They're looking at the MRI, MRNA, MRNA, I have trouble saying it, MRNA levels, and you get a score between one and eight. Uh, and it predicts prostate cancer uh, mortality if not treated. So these, this is a study where they looked at prostate cancer mortality, 700 men who had needle biopsies and were managed conservatively. Importantly, these are not just Gleason 6 cancers. These included Gleason 7s and even higher. I think about, about a tenth of the patients had Gleason 8s and above. And what you can see is as you get a higher score, the patient is more and more likely to die of prostate cancer over the subsequent 10 years. 59% risk of dying of prostate cancer, you have a score greater than 2. Now, this doesn't tell you that the patient's going to do better if they're treated. It simply tells you what's going to happen if they're not treated. But I want you to pay attention to these middle two scores, 1 through 2 and 0 through 1, because there's a second study where they looked at radical prostatectomy patients treated in the late 90s and early uh, millennium. They did a, sim stimula a simulated biopsy. So they took the biopsy out, prostate out, and they pretended to do needle cores on them and then ran the prostate cancer, they ran the study, and they did prostate cancer mortality on them. And what you can see is, yes, the person with a very high score did poorly, but those patients with intermediate scores that had a high mortality, it seems to have gone away when they had surgery. So this tells me that possibly those patients with the middle score, we can shift them into a, a better state if we go ahead and we treat them as opposed to observe them, whereas this may be more about biology than about treatment. So it's a prognostic marker, low risk on active surveillance, high risk we probably should treat. The question now is, is how much risk is acceptable? My the level of risk is going to be different than, than Jerry's, uh, different than Oliver's, different than, than, than Anthony's, and more importantly, the patient's level of risk that they're willing to accept is going to be different. And how much can we alter the risk by treatment? That really needs to be uh, figured out. Oncotype DX is a very similar uh, uh, idea. You go ahead and you take the tissue from the, the biopsy that shows cancer. Uh, you look at, uh, theirs is a 17 gene, gene signature. They develop a score. Again, uses fixed tissue. You don't need to re-biopsy the patient. And it predicts risk of aggressive disease. So this is the kind of report you get, a, a, a GPS score of 40, which says this patient has intermediate risk disease. Uh, and it gives you the, uh, the, the freedom from high-grade disease and freedom from organ-confined disease. The problem with this is I think patients have trouble uh, uh, understanding this. They get, you, know, you tell the patient you have a 20% chance of having T3 disease. Well, what does that mean, doc? Well, it means you have a 20% chance of having T3 disease. I think they need more uh, uh, tools in order that the patient can understand. And I think this is a step in the right direction. They took about 6,000 patients of which about 200 had biopsy tissue available, and they divided them into low, intermediate, and high-risk prostate cancer. And what you can see here, this is biochemical recurrence at five years. This is 10-year metastasis-free survival. And they have it very low and low, intermediate and high-risk disease, just the way we commonly uh, risk stratify our patients. And as you increase the GPS score, for each of these risk strata, you can say the likelihood of having a biochemical recurrence or the likelihood of developing metastatic disease increases. So if you have very low risk disease, but you have a GPS score of 90, maybe you shouldn't be, maybe you should be treated aggressively. Uh, high risk and you have a very low score, 
I mean, I don't feel that comfortable putting a patient with a PS, uh, you know, Gleason pattern 8 on any sort of observation. But there are other high-risk criteria, like a PSA of 21. And it's entirely plausible that maybe in an older patient, someone a little sicker, maybe in their early 70s, we'd go ahead and leave them alone. So it's a prognostic biomarker. High-risk patients more likely to have a cult pattern 4, and they should be treated. Low-risk patients can be observed. I, as I said, I think the percentages are sometimes confusing to the patient. And I think moving to a risk of recurrence metric will really uh, help us use this data with our patients. Okay, lastly, uh, the decipher test. This is a multi-pathway gene signature, again, 22 genes, examining radical prostatectomy specimens, though they are increasingly moving into the needle biopsy space. Uh, the endpoint is five-year metastasis-free survival, and what they are, it, it's used in two different uh, uh, scenarios, patients with adverse pathology at the time of surgery and patients who have a rise in PSA, and it tells you what the metastasis rate is following surgery. So this is the, the, the latest study, which was a meta-analysis of five trials, roughly 900 patients, eight, only 82 developed metastatic disease. Interestingly, the, the main study that got this approved, only 19 of the patients had metastatic disease. So I think it's reassuring to see this being analyzed with more events. And they found that metastasis was associated, it was about 5% in the lower strata, 15% in the intermediate risk, and 26% in the high risk. And it was a very strong correlation both, both on univariate and multivariate analysis. So it's a prognostic biomarker, identifies men at very high risk for failing surgery. I think it provides information beyond clinical pathologic variables alone, identifies patients who would get adjuvant or salvage radiation therapy, and this is something we can talk about in the question and answer period, but it's predictive. It can't tell you who will respond to the radiation. And one of the problems that we have is we really only have one therapy that's going to be curative in that time, in that space. Uh, and hopefully over time, this will become as much of a predictive as a prognostic marker. So in conclusion, PSA testing is flawed. Risk assessment is flawed. Biomarker tests focus on identification of men with prostate cancer and men with potentially lethal cancer. Markers to identify who will benefit from each treatment I think will be increasingly useful. And I think there are hints that these tests, like Decipher, will actually be useful in that space, but I'm not convinced yet. Uh, don't order too many tests. I mean, the classically is the patient who comes in who's had two MRIs, a PHI score, a 4K score, uh, and uh, a select MDX. They all tell something a little different, and the patient asks me what's going on, and I'm, I, you know, it's too much information, you know? Uh, I, I really think you should pick the one that works for you and stick with it. Uh, and uh, I, I like using uh, one of these tests with an MRI, uh, and I think it's very useful in terms of counseling the patients. That's it. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Adam, stick around. Any uh, questions uh, from the floor? Uh, Please, ask some questions. He I'm was feverishly ask asking all these things uh, down. This, this is, uh, which of these tests can be used uh, if the man is taking finasteride or dutasteride? You know, that is a really good question. I think I'd refer to the expert in the room on dutasteride and finasteride. Well, the urinary tests can, but uh, my uh, understanding of PHI and the 4K score, uh, they're perturbed. You know, the ratios, uh, some of the ac uh, accessory markers are perturbed. So for men on finasteride, I think you have to go to the urinary test. That's a really interesting. So it was, did you look at any of these in the REDUCE uh, we did. trial? Yeah, PCA3 uh, test definitely uh, works. We did that in the uh, REDUCE trial. Yeah. And we know the other tests are not validated on that. So that's just one little thing. 
Another uh, thing that I was thinking of while you were presenting, and maybe Dr. D'Amico can also comment, how do you decide when to stop screening? Uh, uh, so you, you talked about age plus your 4K score, if, if I understood right. you correctly. Maybe, uh, Anthony, right. I'd like your opinion on that, too. So I'll, I'll comment. So uh, there's good data out there. So it is hard to stop screening. It really is. Because the people with low PSAs, it's really easy just to continue it. And the people with high PSAs, you don't want to stop. So the best data out there, I think there's two pieces of important pieces of data. The first is uh, Ed Schaefer did a very nice study where he looked at uh, elevation of PSA uh, at, in their 70s and then followed the patients until they died. And if you had a PSA at 75 that was three or less, none of the patients died, okay? So that's an easy one. The other thing is in the PIVOT trial, it didn't appear that patients benefit from treatment unless their PSA was over 10. Okay? So another thing to think about is if the PSA is like 9, yeah, the patient may have prostate cancer, but the likelihood of them benefiting from, a, uh, from an intervention is, 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 uh, is relatively low. I think the last piece of data is the 90-day mortality from a prostate needle biopsy of someone in their 80s is 3%. Okay? I think that's a nice round number because the risk of dying of prostate cancer is also about 3% lifetime. So when I see somebody who's, uh, you, know, you know, I'm worried they could have a aggressive disease because their PSA is skyrocketing and they have a terrible rectal exam, yeah, I'll biopsy that guy, but a guy who has, you know, he's always had a negative rectal exam and his PSA is like 11, I'm like, look, you're more likely to die from the biopsy, from the diagnostic procedure than, than prostate cancer, so I try and leave those patients alone. So I think that uh, the biggest issue will be comorbidity, right? So. The thing about the PIVOT study, uh, Adam, is that it's got 10-year follow-up. So PSA over 10 was relevant, but PSA under 10 could just be underpowered at the 10-year follow-up to actually see a difference. And so I get very worried about studies when we're talking about a guy in his 50s that only have 10-year follow-up. And I think the other thing I would say is that in terms of you know, what we know about aggressive prostate cancer, men who are older tend to get the more aggressive cancers. And if we think biologically, it's because as we age, and most men go through andropause, the testosterone level is dropping, so those cancers that develop in men in their 70s, early 80s, are more likely to be high grade because they're developing an androgen deplete environment. So I think there's, it's not obvious to me where you stop screening. I think you ha I, the one factor I use is comorbidity. So once a guy's life expectancy is shortened because of cardiopulmonary disease, end-stage issues with diabetes, that's easy. But the guy who doesn't have any of those issues, I. I have a hard time saying no because we know older men get worse disease uh, just because of the low T environment and 10-year data from many of these studies don't reassure me with a PSA of 10. Anthony, before you leave, um, well, there's a yeah. question from the floor, but don't leave because I got one for you. So I'm hoping you can settle the argument uh, or, or debate in my group. Um, I, I'll, I'm a select MDX guy. I go to the data, the area and the curve 0.9. The only reason they even started doing all these is PSA, as you showed in one study, is almost 0.5, and then yeah, maybe yeah. maybe up to 0.6, depending on your study. And so then they came up with another one, get the 0.7, everyone's excited. Point, and then finally get to 0.9, and everyone's like, well, I don't want to use that one. I like this little blood test. And it's like, so I argue, it's like, why would you give up data? They said, and so they, their argument is, is um, that is blood, and I argue that it's not data-driven, that you're market-driven based on the marketing. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I understand the question. The debate in your group. It's like select MDX versus 4K. Yeah, where, where, you want where are you getting a better? Best? Where are you getting better data from? 
I, I, you know, I, I like both of those tests. Uh, I, uh, I, I order both of them fairly frequently. Uh, I, I would love to tell you that there was a clear line in the sand where I said, this is why I love this one, this is why I don't love that one. Uh, I, uh, I, I like them both. Uh, I wish I could tell you, I wish I could give you a, a, a hard and fast rule, but I don't. I, I, I tend to, those are the two that I tend to order the most because they have the highest area under the curve. But I even get some, some PCA3 sometimes. I mean, uh, I, 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 I've reached the point where I actually should have an algorithm about which one I should choose because the data is mature enough, but I haven't gone ahead and do that. I could make one up right now, but it wouldn't be very useful. I will say, as I said, one of the biggest things with me is I've already done the rectal exam. The guy's on his way out the door. And I'm like, okay, let's just get a 4K score. Whereas if I think about it ahead of time, I'll often get the select MDX. I mean, do you have any thoughts on this? Have you, have you chosen one? Well, the problem is there's no comparisons among these different yeah. biomarkers. And, and so honestly, for me, I, I tend to use 4K, unless the man's on finasteride, tend to use select. My opinion, no science behind it, except that the the, the, the PSA-based tests are not uh, validated in finasteride-taking patients. Some of this is going to be settled a little bit, at least in terms of the different urine tests. In that EDRN trial that I showed you, they saved urines, and they're able to, they've been busy running all these tests against those urines, and they'll be able to look and see, at least in that population, whether one clearly outperforms one of the others. But I'm not sure a difference of, like, 0.83 to 0.85 is really a real difference. And, and they may actually reflect I would say they'd reflect exactly the same thing, but I've seen patients that have fine 4K scores and terrible select MDX and the other way around, and that I find really confusing. Have you seen patients yeah, like absolutely. that? Absolutely, and, and I was just going to point out uh, that, uh, you know, the three, uh, you know, tissue markers to predict the behavior of a given tumor often perform differently. So there was a study out of Europe which uh, would have placed Certain tumors in, they, they did radical prostatectomies, and there were like five tumor foci at least in each prostate. Some individual tumors would be considered aggressive on Prolaris, non-aggressive by Decipher, and uh, there were different profiles for the multiple different tumors within the prostate, suggesting that, you know, the biopsy that happens to hit one of those tumors may be telling you almost nothing about what's happening to the other undiagnosed tumors within that prostate. There's, there's, uh, this is not, there's no one close to having a commercially available test like this, but there's a concept you may hear called a liquid biopsy. And the idea is that you can draw blood out of someone's arm and it can reflect what the underlying tumor is, the aggressive tumor. And what's nice about it is there will be less heterogeneity because you're sampling all of the tumors that, at least in theory, that are in the prostate. And it won't just be used for prostate, it'll be used for a variety of different malignancies. But uh, that's still something everybody's working the kinks out on. The, the on final that? question I wanted to ask Dr. D'Amico, you know, uh, uh, Prolaris and Decipher can be used theoretically to help you decide whether the man who just had a radical prostatectomy should have adjuvant versus salvage uh, radiation. And, and maybe it would perform better because the pathologist is supposed to dissect out the worst component of the cancer and send that off uh, for the uh, genetic testing. So I'd just like to turn to the expert. Uh, Dr. D'Amico, do you use them? Are they good or are they bad? So Adam was very careful in terms of how he talked about prognostic versus predictive. So prognostic means that if the marker is a high number, it means you're unlikely to do well with observation. That is, let's say, no adjuvant RT. But it, as he also pointed out, it doesn't mean by doing adjuvant RT you're going to do better. 
the only way you can establish predictiveness of a marker is where you have the marker got taken up front and then you randomize people to, let's say, adjuvant RT versus not. This is being done in one of the uh, NRG studies. And then you look to see if the marker was elevated and they got adjuvant RT, did they do better than if the marker was elevated and they didn't get adjuvant RT and they got salvage. That's the only way you can know for sure. So we don't use Decipher or Prolaris to decide who gets adjuvant versus salvage. We use basically the number of risk factors that are, that are present. Now, you know, you have to be careful because there are some people who have seminal vesicle invasion with a positive margin and can have a low decipher score. Are you not going to offer them treatment because based when we have level one evidence that suggests their progression-free survival is better with adjuvant because their decipher score is low? This is where you get into trouble. Conversely, you have people who have low risk features, negative margins, you know, negative SVs, negative capsular penetration, and a high decipher score. Are you going to offer them treatment? Um, because of the high decipher score. We would say no at this point as well. So I think we need more information before we use it for clinical decision making, because as Adam said, they're prognostic today, but we don't know if they're predictive. There's one, one of the, we did a rather nice study with, uh, 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 which was, uh, the PI was uh, Dr. Gore uh, in Seattle, uh, and basically looked at whether it influenced the radiation oncologist and the patient as to whether they would get radiation therapy or not. And it clearly showed that it did influence patients with higher risk more likely to get radiation, patients that had lower risk more likely to be followed. But that actually is, that's an important piece of information, but the important piece of information is whether they got it eventually anyway. So if a year or two later you found that everybody got radiation, then you clearly haven't even done them any good by getting the test uh, purely from drive, driving decision making, because all you did was delay the inevitable. Okay, any other uh, questions for uh, Dr. Kybel? Okay, thank you. Thank you. So uh, my talk is going to be on uh, prostate uh, biopsy, uh, MRI, and PET scans, you know, the novel uh, kinds of imaging that are now available to us. And I think we're on the cusp of uh, some pretty significant uh, breakthroughs. Uh, here are uh, my disclosures. Uh, we are investigating a, a PET scan, uh, PSMA-based, and also uh, Blue Earth Diagnostics, which makes flucyclovine the uh, Actumin uh, scan. And I'm going to show data related th that we're presenting at this meeting. Uh, and also uh, working with a company of, on a, a better uh, form of uh, prostate biopsy. Uh, my first few slides are just to kind of be entertaining. Uh, the history of prostate biopsy has been going on now for about 100 years, and I don't think even as we stand here today that we know how to do it. I'm not going to read these slides, but uh, the very first uh, biopsies were done transperineally, a few years later transrectally, different types of needles, open biopsies, open transrectal biopsies, digitally guided transperineally, digitally guided transrectal, and you can see how this is evolving now over almost 100 years, different types of needles. Even in 1960, people were worried about infection and instilling different things into the rectum to try to reduce that. Cases of transurethral biopsies. Uh, so it sounds like urologists as a group were really unsatisfied with how they were able to diagnose prostate cancer. And uh, we thought, I think, that uh, there was a great breakthrough 
in the mid-60s, uh, uh, early 70s when transrectal ultrasound became available. And in fact, when uh, we started our first uh, screening program uh, testing PSA in 1989, we um, had uh, as part of our protocol a four-core biopsy if your PSA was elevated. And because we thought that was the state of the art, right around the same time, Hodge described a sextant, a six-core biopsy. So we, we uh, in short order, changed uh, our biopsies to that. But as everyone would say today, probably, probably, the standard biopsy, if you're doing it in the office, should be a 12-core biopsy. But I put it to you that we really don't even know if that's optimal. Uh, we have learned for sure, though, that whatever kind of ultrasound-guided biopsy you do, that it's operator-dependent. No matter how skilled you believe you are in arraying those cores symmetrically and systematically throughout the prostate, they're not. They're very likely to be randomly arrayed. And we can see that because, you know, the first pass 12-core biopsy probably only detects about half the cancers that are present in prostates. They miss at least half of them, and that's why second, third, fourth, fifth biopsies are always positive in between 15 and 20 percent of the patients. And furthermore, even if you find a cancer on a conventional biopsy, it often underestimates the size of the cancer, and it can also underestimate the Gleason score. And moreover, there are, there are some cases where the, the, the so-called systematic biopsy overestimates. If the two positive cores happen to be into the same focus of, uh, you know, pattern four disease, you may think this guy has a much more aggressive cancer than, uh, than he really uh, has. And, and we and others try to use all kinds of different uh, pathological ways of predicting whether a 12-core biopsy could tell us if, if you had insignificant disease, advanced disease, or you're going to be upgraded or downgraded. And the answer is that it's garbage in, garbage out. The information we get from, from a, uh, a hand-done transrectal office 12-core biopsy is actually very bad. We don't even know at this time what the ideal number of cores is to fire into the prostate, and, and I think the current state of the art is about 12, but there are other people who would advocate for up to 24. Uh, most would agree that the core, the number of cores you take should depend on prostate size and the threshold volume of cancer that merits detection, and those would consider the age and the health of the patient. And I like this paper from, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, the Vienna nomogram, that basically said if your prostate is in this stratum and you're of this age, uh, this would give you about a 90% chance of detecting a 1cc prostate cancer if you arrayed those cores uh, systematically. So it, for, for an older man, small prostate, six cores might be enough. Uh, I'm sorry, for a young man, uh, old man, small prostate. On the other hand, for a young man, big prostate, you may need to take a lot more cores. And that makes empirical uh, sense. And you could also analyze this mathematically. Uh, if you want to, uh, if you believe your cores are systematically and symmetrically arrayed, to find a 90% probability to develop, to find a 1cc cancer, you would need to fire 20 cores into a 70cc uh, prostate. The problem that we've all learned is that the more times we biopsy, the more opportunity there is to, to 
infect that patient. And, th and there's, as Adam mentioned, a mortality, not uh, a huge mortality, but a couple of reports showing worrisome mortality related to transrectal ultrasound-guided biopsies of the prostate. And it's for that reason that a lot of people have now started to look back at transperineal biopsies because they're essentially never associated with a serious uh, infection. And I think most of the data to date have been uh, uh, with transperineal biopsy have been performed using the transperineal grid and a, and a stepper unit to hold the ultrasound probe and you just superimpose the shape of the prostate over that grid and you fire needles into each, if you're gonna do this under anesthesia particularly, into each hole, which, is, which are spaced five millimeters apart. And uh, until we now have developed longer biopsy throw needles, you would maybe have to take two biopsies in, in the hole uh, in this part of the prostate, because remember, the conventional biopsy needle only gives you about a two centimeter throw length. So if your prostate is four to six centimeters in length, you obviously have to biopsy each hole multiple times. And uh, this can be done, and if you're uh, facile uh, with uh, transperineal work and placement of the prostate, you can do a heck of a job monitoring your needle on a transverse and the sagittal uh, position, and, and you can array uh, uh, your cores uh, very systematically. And, and uh, here are the uh, seven or eight largest series describing uh, 3D transperineal prostate mapping biopsies. And, and when we first did these, they were in patients who we were worried about who had had up to, in some cases, 10 prior uh, transrectal ultrasound uh, biopsy efforts. And you can see that no matter how heavily pre-biopsied the population was, that we found cancer in somewhere between 20 and 40 percent of the, of the patients. Uh, the, the problems with it, though, are that you have to end up taking about one core per each 1.2 cc's of prostate if you're going to biopsy each of the five millimeter uh, spots. So we had used this a number of years ago before we had MRI to attempt to uh, localize cancers within the prostate. And if you're careful about it, you get, do a pretty good job figuring out which octant of the prostate that uh, cancer is located in and is there cancer in any of the other octants of the prostate. The same was found by Winston Barzell's group and uh, by Brian Moran, who's a uh, radiation therapist uh, as well. Uh, you will see some abstracts at this meeting that have sort of uh, kicked this up into uh, uh, steroids where, again, uh, biopsies are taken transperineally every five millimeters. The cores are placed into the prostate. Uh, as I alluded to uh, before, there's a special needle now that's uh, much stiffer and, and with a conical-shaped tip such that there's no bevel on the, on the end of the needle. So as a consequence of having a stiffer shafted needle and a diamond-shaped uh, tip, that needle as you shoot it into the prostate goes straight. It doesn't sail like it sometimes does because of the bevel. And uh, the second thing is that the needle is adjustable and, and a given core can be as long as six centimeters. And uh, you can adjust it down to as short as one centimeter or as long as six centimeters. 
and there's a methodology to uh, unload that core onto a, uh, a special uh, a piece of paper that has kind of a Velcro surface to it so that when you unwind that core, it stays in that location. You fold this uh, over the top. You put a dot to define this as the apical end of the core, a different color ink dot to define this as the bladder end of the core, and send it to your pathologist, and then he or she can cut that and know exactly where your um, cancer is located, upload that information back into a computer program, and really make a three-dimensional map of where the tumor is. Uh, another uh, option for transperineal biopsy is uh, this uh, precision point transperineal access system. And I've started doing this now uh, for patients who don't have MRI targets. Uh, the way this works is that uh, you put your sagittal probe in. This um, needle goes uh, through the skin of the perineum just into some of the perineal fat. And uh, so you, you uh, introduce it uh, into, uh, say, the right uh, side of the perineum. And then uh, that acts as an introducer for your biopsy needle. And you can generally manipulate your, your uh, probe uh, by angling it up and down, right and left, to uh, transperineally uh, biopsy the prostate. And uh, we usually use this 10-sector map and, and the power of it is that you're able to get very anterior cores, uh, and uh, each of the cores that you're taking of the peripheral zone of the prostate sample much more of the peripheral zone than a transrectal biopsy would. Because remember, that transrectal biopsy is going through the peripheral zone in this direction, whereas transperineally, you're getting a much more longitudinal sampling of the peripheral zone of the prostate. So given that you can sample more of the peripheral zone and also reach the anterior parts of the prostate, I think it'll probably do a better job than the uh, transrectal ultrasound. We've been using it. The group at Hopkins has been using it. The group in Michigan has been using it. And, and uh, in addition to those advantages, again, it's transperineal and it's not associated with the infections. You don't even need to use Cipro pre-op. I will say there is a learning curve to uh, doing it under local anesthesia, uh, you can put in a periprostatic block. We use about 30 to 40 cc's of 1% xylocaine to do it. But it does take, a, there is a little arc to uh, learning how to do that. And it probably takes longer than a conventional 12-core biopsy. But I think it's a better biopsy. And as I said, I tend to do this kind of biopsy in a man who either has a negative MRI or who can't get an MRI because the insurance company won't, uh, won't do it. Uh, I'd like, like most of the people in the room, to get an MRI to uh, uh, guide my biopsies uh, in the biopsy-naive uh, patient. Uh, until about two and a half years ago, we did cognitive uh, biopsies uh, without uh, the fusion platform. And actually, you could do it if you think about it. Uh, it's more work than using the fusion platform. But uh, we, we showed that at uh, WashU. Uh, uh, Samir Taneja showed it at um, uh, NYU as well that uh, fusion and uh, cognitive targeting are equally effective, and you don't absolutely have to go out and spend the money to get a, um, 
uh, software platform. These are data from Peter Pinto and the group at the NCI, and you can see that um, the uh, MRI targeted biopsies found a lot of aggressive cancers in patients whose sextant, sextant biopsy was negative. But again, if you only biopsied the target, you would have missed uh, eight or nine patients. You would have had fewer patients that you missed, but you would have missed some patients. And so that's why most of us who do MRIs, and I, I assume everybody in the room does, you don't just do a biopsy of the MRI target. You still have to biopsy you know, the remainder of the prostate because MRI is not perfect by any means. Uh, so it, at WashU, our biopsy naive, now this is using a fusion uh, platform. Uh, looks like the MRI readers at our center miss about 4% of the Gleason 7 cancers that we end up finding on systematic biopsy. Adding the MRI finding to the PCPT nomogram improves uh, the prediction of prostate cancer. And you can see the presence of an MRI suspicious lesion is the worst prognostic uh, thing you can ever have for a man who has a uh, elevated uh, PSA. Uh, about two years ago, the PROMISE trial was published, which was a comparison between ultrasound-guided biopsy and MRI-targeted biopsy. And you can see that the MRI-targeted biopsy was associated with a lower rate of overdiagnosis of trivial small cancer and a higher rate of finding significant cancer than the uh, conventional 12-core uh, biopsy. Uh, Dr. D'Amico alluded to this study, which was published very recently in the New England Journal of Medicine, which showed the exact same thing, and that is uh, that um, there's uh, uh, more clinically irrelevant cancer in men undergoing the standard biopsy in comparison to the men undergoing the targeted biopsy and more significant cancer. These are the uh, probabilities of finding clinically significant cancer on the basis of a PIRAD score. So even PIRADS 5 lesions are not uh, always, they're often associated with uh, aggressive cancer, but not always. And so I have patients who have very worrisome uh, PIRAD 5 lesions who say, why do I need a biopsy? Why don't you just take my prostate out? I don't think we're there yet. We may get there if we're adding PET to MRI, as I'll comment on uh, uh, later on in the talk. So in summary, I am a, I'm a strong proponent of MRI-targeted biopsy. Uh, in the trials, uh, overall, fewer men will get biopsies. There's fewer biopsy cores per biopsy session, more cases of clinically significant cancer, fewer men with clinically insignificant cancer, and the patient-reported outcomes are better in the patients who have uh, MRI-targeted biopsy. Now, the problem is the insurance companies are pushing back against this because it causes money. And, and again, this is uh, a, a recent data from the group uh, at NCI, uh, again, showing that uh, in adding the MRI finding to all your uh, other uh, predictors of the presence of cancer increases your area under the curve. But what they really showed is, is that MRI starts showing value when the risk, when, when the man sitting in front of you has at least a 10% risk of prostate cancer. So uh, it might be, and I was talking to uh, Evacor, which is one of these companies that manages a lot of the insurance policies for Aetna and Cigna, 
that they may say, okay, if, if you could prove to me that this man has at least a 10% chance of, uh, of aggressive cancer, we'll pay for the MRI. How are you going to get to that 10% prediction? Well, you're either going to use the PCPT nomogram or something like the OPCO 4K score. So that, that will tell you before the biopsy that his risk is sufficient enough that an MRI seems to be uh, justified. The other thing that there's a lot of pushback about uh, MRI uh, from the insurance carrier's point of view is the radiologists don't agree among themselves. So you could show uh, the same set of MRIs to uh, groups of radiologists at the same centers and, and uh, the Kappa statistic here uh, shows the agreement among individual radiologists and you can see it's actually quite poor. And I will air some of our dirty laundry. At Wash U, there's about six radiologists who read our prostatic MRIs. I keep ROC curves on each one of them. And if you considered our fusion biopsy the truth, there are some people whose area under the curve is up to 0.85. There's one radiologist whose area under the curve is 0.54, meaning no better than a, than a coin toss. And these are well-trained radiologists working at the same medical center with the same imaging. So there's a lot of um, uh, work that the radiologists have to do to improve um, their interpretation of MRIs. I think we're going to hear a lot more about uh, PET scanning in the future. You know, uh, a few years ago, we were very excited about sodium fluoride PET scan to identify uh, bone metastasis. Uh, however, very recently, Medicare declines uh, to cover sodium fluoride PET anymore, and I think that uh, it's apt to go away, that there are going to be better PET imaging agents uh, out there than uh, sodium fluoride PET. The two that are approved uh, in the United States is uh, C11-choline and F18-flucyclovine, or FACBC, the Actiman scan. Uh, they're both approved uh, and recommended in the uh, latest uh, NCCN guidelines uh, for patients who have biochemically recurrent disease after tr primary treatment with either surgery or radiation. Uh, the data are actually, you know, pretty good. This is a meta-analysis of all the choline data, and you can see that uh, it can identify the site of uh, recurrence and or metastasis. Uh, in uh, about uh, 62 or two-thirds of the patients who get a C11-choline. Uh, the problem with C11-choline uh, is right here. If you did a radical prostatectomy on the patient and his PSA is just barely detectable at 0.2, with a choline PET scan, only 19% of the time will you find out where that recurrence is. Keep that number in mind. We recently have FACVC or Actumin uh, scans available. Uh, been evaluated in a bunch of different trials, and I'll just show you here, among patients who have PSA values of less than 0.8, you can see there's a 40% detection. So a much better probability of detecting the site of recurrent disease with an FACVC scan than a choline scan. Uh, and uh, because the half-life of uh, uh, choline is so short, uh, you know, the uh, choline has to be uh, produced right on site, whereas the uh, fluorinated uh, FACBC can be uh, shipped in. 
There's one small comparative trial between choline and flucyclovine, and you can see uh, higher sensitivity, uh, specificity, and uh, overall positive predictive values uh, for the FACBC scan. We have an abstract we're presenting tomorrow, which was a treatment alteration trial using FACBC for patients with biochemical recurrence. Uh, the study group, and this was all done in the United States, 60% uh, of the time, once you had the knowledge of what the FACBC scan showed, there was a major treatment change. For example, moving from salvage non-curative systemic therapy to no treatment moving from salvage therapy to non-curative, and you can see the kinds of major treatment changes. Do we know if we made the right decision? No, but uh, we're, we're using our best judgment uh, to do so. Also, right around the corner are PSMA-based uh, PET scans. Uh, you've heard about, uh, there's gallium and F-18 agents. They are uh, considered investigational in the United States, but I think it's likely that they will be approved uh, very, very soon. Uh, here's an example of a series of uh, gallium-68 uh, in the United States, and this was reported uh, at their most recent ASCO-GU. Notice that if the PSA is, is less than one, that there's you know, a considerable proportion of patients will have a, an objective finding. Uh, and uh, 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 I apologize that uh, the slide didn't make it, but presented at this meeting was a uh, gallium PSMA PET MRI in patients with negative conventional MRI scans. 45% uh, of the patients with an elevated PSA, a negative conventional MRI, who had a uh, gallium PSMA scan were found to have an abnormal lesion within the prostate and biopsy of that lesion showed an aggressive cancer in like 17% of the, of the men who had that uh, positive uh, gallium PET MRI. So I think it, we could get to an area down not too far in the distant future where we're going to combine modalities with PET and, uh, and MRI, whether it's FACBC, gallium PSMA, or uh, fluorinated uh, PYL uh, PSMA, I don't think anybody could say, but I, I keep, keep an eye on that. So uh, yeah, thanks very much. Uh, that's all I have to say, and I'm, I'm happy to answer any uh, questions. I think the last point that Dr. Andriel made about PET maybe complementing MRI in the de novo setting where the PSA is high, you know, four, five, six, is very promising. In the post-op setting, you know, you look at every study you showed, the minimum PSA was 0.2. And then it goes, and you start to get improved characteristics as you get to 0.5, 1, 1 and a half. Who follows patients to those PSA levels? That's, that's, so I'm not so sure that PET is very good in the post-op setting. I think by the time you find it, exactly what you said, it may be too late. But in the de novo setting, that could be very promising because you've got the full gland there, you've got your PSA level, you've got enough uh, source, if you will, to actually find something. And it may be complementary to MRI, I don't know. Uh, no, that was a very uh, eye-opening, um, uh, uh, relatively small report from Europe. And uh, it's something to keep an eye on. And, and it could be one day, I don't know, 
that we won't need to biopsy the prostate. I'm not saying we're there by any stretch of the imagination, but something to keep your eye on. Final speaker, Dr. Oliver Sartor. Now this is a really fascinating part of uh, prostate cancer, the uh, treatment of advanced disease. I don't think during my lifetime we've ever had so many great options as we do today. Thank you, Jerry. It's a real pleasure to, to be here. I was talking to Jerry a little bit right before the, the meeting. I think this year, number four, that I've had the opportunity. And it actually is amazing. I've never seen so much change as we have today. And I'm not sure that I'll be able to really capture the whole change that we have recently, but I'll try to hit some of the highlights, and I hope you'll be entertained as we go forward. Uh, I entitled the talk, Advanced Prostate Cancer, Paradigm Integrating Genetics, Imaging, Local and Systemic Therapies. And that's just kind of part of it. There's more to the story. Uh, just some relevant disclosures, but I don't think anyone has influenced the, the, this particular um, uh, talk that we have today. One of the changes that I think has really been quite intriguing is that it used to be that, you know, we had a urologist, maybe we had a medical oncologist, radiation oncologist, and we'd kind of work together in a multidisciplinary clinic. And today, you know, this sort of thought process and multidisciplinarity is definitely present, but it's gotten more expanded. Yes, we have the hormonal therapies and targeted therapies. We now have immunotherapies that are beginning to raise sort of interesting questions. Chemotherapy, yes. Surgery, of course, radiation. But nuclear medicine, as Jerry was just showing with these new PET scans, is really starting to influence the way we approach the disease. And molecular pathology, genetics, and even genetic counselors are all coming into play. So it's sort of not your grandfather's prostate cancer. If you want to do it right, it's going to take a lot of different components working together. And putting those teams together is, I think, where we're going to be going in the future. And it's, quite frankly, what we're trying to work on right now. I'm going to start off talking a little bit about the hormone-naive metastatic prostate cancer. And so these are the patients who walk in, and they may not have had any PSA screening. This happens more and more and more today. And there's some areas of consensus, there's some areas of controversy, and there's some areas of change. I'll try to hit each one of these a little bit. So the consensus is, if you look at Chris Sweeney and the beautiful charted trial that he's done and the Stampede trials, we know that dostaxel and ADT are appropriate for what we call high-volume metastatic disease. But there's been a fair amount of controversy over the low-volume subset and whether or not docetaxel really adds value to ADT. And there's now an update with charted showing no. In the low-volume subset, docetaxel does not add value. So you need a high-volume disease in order to benefit from docetaxel and ADT. And then we have the change. And we have both stampede and latitude are game changers. These are ADT plus or minus abiraterone. And there's some new data that shows the quality. And I'll try to cover that. So here's the low-volume follow-up on charted. And this is from Chris Sweeney and the beautiful charted group. And you can see the high volume still has a hedge ratio of 0 0.63 for overall survival, I meaning reduction in the risk of death by about 37%. But for the low volume subset, there was absolutely no difference in the longer term follow-up. And it's a little bit disappointing because, of course, we want to be able to take these low volume patients and improve their prognosis. But giving them ADT with docetaxel is not the way to go. Now, here's the, the latitude study, which is the ADT plus the 
abiraterone for de novo metastatic disease. And these had to fulfill certain criteria, but the bottom line is almost everybody had three or more bone mets and a Gleason 8 or higher. That was the most basic criteria. And what was pretty phenomenal was the PSA progression-free survival, 33 months versus 7.4 months. So if you're using ADT alone, 7.4 months is kind of the time to PSA progression versus 33. That's a huge difference. Has a ratio of 0.3, but you don't have to be a genius to be able to see the difference in those curves. In addition, there was radiographic progression-free survival, has a ratio of 0.47, and the overall survival in this study had a has ratio of 0.62. This is a, a dramatic improvement in survival, and these are the individuals who typically had three or more bone mets and a Gleason A. Question. What's better, docetaxel or abiraterone? And now we have a direct comparison. It was just published very recently by Matt Sides, who's a statistician who put together the Stampede study. Genius of a guy, so far as I'm concerned. They have a direct comparison of the ADT docetaxel and ADT abiraterone. And in this direct comparison, if you look at the, the upper aspects, we'll see if I can get a, yeah, there's the arrow right there. There's absolutely no difference in overall survival. But there was a difference in the failure-free survival, which typically included PSA. To me, this sort of similarity in the OS and a better in the FFS, which is the, the PSA and others, implies better salvage therapy. And I think that's what was going on. A lot of these individuals who got the ADT docetaxel, they'd be switched over to abiraterone a little bit later, and they would do pretty well. Germline genetics, just, you know, just the touch. I mean, I actually, you know, I have an hour lecture on this, and it takes up the whole hour. But what I'll say is that in 2016, we had a New England Journal manuscript that sort of laid out beautifully the germline genetics of those people with advanced uh, prostate cancer. About 12% of men will have something that's important, and this is predominantly BRCA2, uh, but there are also a variety of others, CHECK2, ATM. If you take the two BRCAs together, it turns out that there are about half the abnormalities, but about half the abnormalities are non-BRCA. So a lot of people were going through BRCA testing, uh, the BRCA1 and 2 genes is a lot more to the story. That's only half the story. And one of the things that we've learned is that in addition to sort of increasing the risk that you have with the BRCA2, and this is well documented, it turns out that something called polygenic risk scores can change that risk pretty dramatically. Overall, it's about a 40% penetrance rate, meaning that about 40% of the guys who have the BRCA2 are going to develop prostate cancer in their lifetime. And of course, there are other risks as well. There's melanoma, there's pancreatic cancer, there's male breast cancer. But what happens is, depending on the other genetic makeup, this can go to 70% or down to 10, 10 or 20%. So it really depends on the genetic context in which the BRCA2 is present. And that's pretty interesting stuff. So why are these germline uh, mutations important? Well, obviously there's implications for targeted screening and early detection. Uh, Anthony mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, identifying high-risk individuals. Well, this is absolutely a high-risk subset. These individuals who have poor prognosis and early age of onset if they just end up developing the cancer de novo. There are implications for future treatment. I'll talk briefly about PARP inhibitors, platinum, PD-1 inhibitors, tomorrow maybe more and implications for genetic counseling and what we call cascade testing, because if you find a guy who has one of these abnormalities, they may have a sister or daughter, and 70% of the men, of the women with a BRCA2 mutant 
will develop breast cancer in about 40% ovarian. And the problem is there's no screening for ovarian. So you end up with a prophylactic ovarectomy as being a possibility. So real implications, not just for the patient, but for the patient's family. There are two big problems in localized prostate cancer in my mind. There's this overtreatment issue and the undertreatment issue. And, you know, when you look at the Gleason score groupings, I, I really like this manuscript that Jonathan Epstein put together. More than 20,000 patients and just taking a simple Gleason score and looking at, at, at PSA recurrences after surgery. And you really see that so many of these individuals just across the board, if they've got the Gleason 910s, are going to do poorly. You know, so how can we do better and how can we begin to think about it? And there's some interesting um, articles that, that have come forward. This is old school. This is ADT improved survival from the BOLA studies uh, that were initially published in the late 90s in the New England Journal. And we know that if you use ADT plus radiation that you do better. But here's an interesting sort of take and twist on it. You may have known that in the breast cancer world they've been dividing things into luminal and basal for a while, but now you can divide prostate into luminal and basal. And the interesting thing is that when you now begin to overlay the treatments, you can actually segregate the responsiveness of ADT into different categories depending on your luminal basal categorization. So it turns out that the luminal B folks benefit from ADT, whereas the non-luminal B do not benefit. And so here's the, the no ADT right here, but the luminal B, you end up with a high metastatic rate. You end up giving them the ADT, you have a decrease. On the other hand, the non-luminal B is you end up adding ADT and it may even be worse. So the risk stratification and the prognosis, this is really a predictive biomarker if it holds up. It was found in a segregated post hoc analysis. Now it needs to be tested in, in a prospective manner, but, but this is potentially really important stuff. Uh, Jerry had talked a little bit about the imaging and the implications. Uh, but I want to just point out that, you know, when we're staging people, and Jerry, I agree with you, some, some of the upfront data is really some of the most intriguing because, you know, we're operating on people and we're treating them with radiation, we're using that localized therapy, but so many of these individuals are just poorly staged who are eventually going to relapse. And cascade and bone scans are able to detect about one cc tumors, but that one cc tumor probably contains about a billion cells. Some people say 100 million, but 10 to the 8, 10 to the 9 cells. And, you know, we're just missing those on the CAT scan. We just can't pick them up or, or the MRI. So one cc tumors are very, uh, very relevant. We can't pick them up. Jerry showed the PSMA imaging. Uh, it's cool. We end up with clociclovine. It's cool. We ended up with the choline, and it's interesting. Um, you know, as we move forward with this, you know, we, we really are sort of redefining prostate cancer, both in the localized sense and in the metastatic sense. I think that's very important. Another whole lecture that I'm not going to talk to you about is the oligometastatic disease, because these are the people that end up just having a minor spread. But what I want to emphasize a little bit on the imaging front is we've talked about localization of the cancer, but there's really so much more to it. These are really intriguing molecular imaging studies that I think I'm introducing to you just as a concept. I'm not saying let's go out and do it, but it turns out that we can actually image PDL1. We want to know where PDL1 is expressed. We've been doing biopsies. Well, maybe we can just image that. We want to look at the CD8 cells, the immune infiltrate into the tumors. Well, maybe we just image that. 
we want to start looking at the androgen axis, well, we can image that. We look at neuroendocrine differentiation. We look at uptake of DHT. We want to look at tumor hypoxia. We can do that. And so this world of molecular imaging is just really on steroids right now. And come back next year and it'll be different. I mean, it'll be 15 new things that we can take a look at. So it's really changing, not just the localization understanding, but also the biologic understanding of what our foe really looks like and what it may take in order to defeat it. So talking a little bit about some CRPC, the, the castrate-resistant prostate cancer next. Uh, one of the things that we've learned is that there's a huge amount of molecular heterogeneity. It turns out that yes, there are a lot of recurrent changes in the androgen receptor, in P53, in P10, in ERG, but then it turns out there's just a lot more to the story. And in this complexity that we now are beginning to understand is also opportunity for a more precision medicine approach to some of these particular alterations. But the androgen receptor remains number one. It's AR, AR, AR in terms of, in terms of the targeting. And there's no doubt that, that Abby and Enza are the most important new therapies that have, have been developed. But it's also important to recognize that resistance develops to essentially all the patients. So they're new drugs, they're impactful new drugs, but it doesn't mean we've solved the problem. It turns out that one of the things that we're doing, of course, is we're giving these type of agents earlier and earlier and earlier. And what we're really doing is we're generating a whole different type of castrate-resistant prostate cancer, one that is resistant in ways that we haven't even begun to fathom yet. It's a whole new area of exploration. We had a brief mention of the liquid biopsy. And liquid biopsies are really cool. They're looking at new ways to be able to detect the early cancers, but that's not really there. But in the advanced metastatic disease, we can begin to look at liquid biopsies in lots of new ways. There's cell-free DNA, circulating tumor cells, which we can characterize, exosomes, uh, RNA, et cetera. For the AR, we can look at amplifications, overexpression, mutations, splice variants, and there are a whole series of other implications. So we're actually incorporating the liquid biopsy into our practice now, but it's really more exploratory. I would love to tell you how smart we are. I'm not quite sure how smart we are yet. Uh, this is something that our group published um, at ASCO-GU. We're putting up the manuscript together. This is just, uh, just an abstract. We had a comprehensive analysis of AR. We had 892 um, patients. Uh, these are individual patients who, who were chosen among 2,273 prostate cancer patients. We looked at the AR mutations that were present, and we just cataloged and say, okay, what's there? So 702, 878, 875, 742, another 742, 877, 878 are the type of things we see. And these, these are pretty, pretty common, and there's a pretty high allelic fraction. In other words, we, we, this is a fair amount of circulation in the, the DNA, and we find stuff. Well, the cool thing is, is we now have a functional context for these AR mutations. They're not just spots on a gel. They're not just alterations. The 702 is activated by prednisone and hydrocortisone, but probably not by dexamethasone. The 742 mutations are activated by bicalutamide. The 875 and 878 encode receptors that are quite promiscuous in their recognition. They're activated by estrogens, progesterone, hydroxyflutamide, and more. 
The H77 is activated by enzalutamide and apalutamide. So now we can begin to look at these alterations in the circulation with a simple blood draw, understand the mutational status, and link it to the pharmacology of the drugs we're using or the endocrinology of the patient that is present in our room in front of us. And this is really quite interesting. One of the things that is also intriguing is, well, what can we do about it? Well, ARB7, I think we've learned a little bit about, and we can convert ARB7 from positive to negative with taxanes in some cases. And if we influence ARB7, we might be able to influence subsequent expression uh, of, or subsequent activity of things like abiraterone and salutamide. This, this one will drive you crazy. This is a PSA antigen response and eradication of AR amplification with high-dose testosterone. So here's a guy who comes in. His AR amplified uh, status is about 16-fold. He has a huge amplification in his AR that we can detect. We give him high-dose testosterone. We eradicate that particular finding. And by the way, his PSA goes down immediately with high-dose testosterone. Eventually, the PSA begins to rise. We retest. Now, he's got an eradication of the AR amplification, which is a marker for abiraterone resistance. We put him back on abiraterone, and he responds again. Then he progresses, and we switch him over to high-dose T. His AR goes up, and then his AR goes down. So here we have a really nice way of looking at the manipulation of the antigen receptor status by alternating between high and low T status. So this is something that's being explored in things like the transformer trial that the guys at Hopkins are doing, but it's kind of cool. But of course, we have to think beyond AR. AR is AR, 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 so important. But for targeted therapy, we have DNA repair alterations, mismatch repair, maybe P10. We think about chemotherapy, immunotherapy, targeted forms of radiation to sort of bring us forward. Here is DNA repair defects, particularly BRCA1, BRCA2, and ATM, responding to a laparib, and even though it's a tiny, tiny little trial, only 16 positive patients with, a part with regards to an AR defect published in the New England Journal with Yolanda Bono, overall survival actually improved by the addition of the olaparib and the PARP inhibitors. By the way, there are three PARP inhibitors now in phase three trial. But why not something cheap and easy like giving platinum and if you're using carboplatin in the BRCA2 setting, you can actually have some pretty profound responses because here DNA repair is inhibited. So you give a DNA damaging agent, it could be radiation or platinum, you can end up with some pretty profound responses. P10 loss is another biomarker, and this seems to be predicted for the AKT inhibitor, uh, epatosartib, which is now in phase three. This is a positive study in the P10 deleted subset. And so now we have molecular biomarkers to choose a new therapy. Immunotherapy, moving fast. Last year, pembrolizumab was actually approved for what we call MSI high, or DNA mismatch repair deficient. And it's not a huge number of patients, but it probably is going to turn out to be about 10%. If you come to ASCO, you'll see that 10% number around. And these particularly associated with the Lynch syndrome genes, MLH1 and MSH2. Some of these responses are quite profound. You know, here's an individual with a PSA of 2,500, and uh, 12 weeks later, it's undetectable. By the way, MSI was absent in this particular case. They had liver mass that went away. So some of these responses with the pd one inhibitors and PD-1 inhibitors are really pretty remarkable. This is something I presented last year at, at AUA. 
and it was sickle cell T in a PSA match cohort. Moving forward, some pretty good numbers here, 409 Caucasians, 205 African Americans, really a, a pretty dramatic improvement in the African American status, and we're writing this up right now. Targeted radiation, if we can image with PSMA, we can treat with PSMA. We have lutetium 177, business 213, actinium 225, maybe thorium 229 and 27. Here's the lutetium 177 being given with PSMA molecule 617. Pretty profound effects on PSA in a particular subset, and now it's a phase three trial. Um, I'm delighted to say that I'm gonna be the PI on the phase three, and we're super, super, super excited about this moving forward, and this, they're gonna have the first site visit uh, to get the trial open probably next month. Alphas may be better than betas, I'm not quite sure, but there sure is some intriguing data. Here's a guy who's looking at his ninth line of treatment, he's got a PSA of 2,900, he's gone through docetaxel and carmustine and abiraterone and enzalutamide and radium and more abiraterone and estramustine. I mean, this guy is toast, that's his PSMA scan, up until he gets the actinium-225 PSMA and his PSA goes down to undetectable when he clears his scan. I mean, these are pretty profound changes. One of the things that I personally think, and I think Anthony D'Amico knows this, that if you look at radiation, it's really just a matter of getting it to the right spot. You know, radiation resistance is a relative finding. If you get the right amount of radiation to the right spot, you're gonna really do some damage to that tumor. The problem is you gotta get the radiation to the right spot. So where do we go from here? You know, I think it probably takes four drugs to cure Hodgkin's disease. That's one of our more curable malignancies. I think it's gonna take multiple drugs. It's probably gonna be multiple pathways. Sure, we're gonna have to hit AR, but maybe we have stromal targeted therapy and the immune system and various targeted therapies too. You know, I'm not sure, but I'm absolutely sure we have to keep working. And I'm also absolutely positively sure that we're going to make progress. I've never been more confident than I am today. So thank you very much for staying until the end. Any uh, questions? I'd like uh, Dr. Keibel's opinion and Dr. D'Amico's opinion. So I recently had a patient, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, come on up, no. who uh, had had a uh, radical prostatectomy in 2012, and he had Gleason 4 plus 3 with extracapsular extension, negative margins, uh, and negative lymph nodes. He made it uh, for four or five years with an undetectable PSA, and then his PSA became detectable. I got a uh, FACBC scan, and it showed a single uh, uh, node uh, in the right common iliac artery above the uh, areas that, that I had done the node dissection on five years prior. And his PSA at this time is like 0.2. Seven or something along those lines. What would you do? Would you do salvage radiation, ignore it, just monitor his PSA doubling time, or do salvage lymphadenectomy? So the only data that we have is a Belgium randomized phase two study in JCO just a couple of months ago looking just at that question, which was, you know, with oligometastatic disease in nodes, bone, or both, what do we accomplish? And the endpoint that they were looking at is time to next treatment. So that's, that's the perspective data we have, that if you radiate, and the, nod and the forest plot, the nodal uh, only disease had a significant p-value was 0.011, 0 
for delaying time to secondary treatment. If you radiated the node and put the guy on standard ADT, as opposed to if you just put him on ADT. That's, all, that's the only prospective data we have. So what are we doing? Um, we actually have, uh, a, Tracy Balboni is one of our palliative care radiation oncologists as a prospective protocol where we will um, treat the METs up to three with SBRT, um, whether they're in bone or lymph nodes, and radiate the prostate if it hasn't been already. Uh, and the endpoint of that study is the same thing, just time to second, ne next treatment. But we have no idea whether or not it has any impact on, you know, really time to METs or cancer death or overall survival. So it's only, we're only doing tho those types of treatments on a trial. So uh, I, I think the thing that's nice about this particular patient is how long it took until he developed the metastatic disease. So I think it is at least plausible that he has, this is the only site of metastatic cancer. Uh, if it happened very rapidly after surgery, or if I remember, he did not, he had high stage, but not high grade, correct? Four plus three. Four plus three. Yeah. So it wasn't Gleason 9 cancer. So I think this is a patient that you plausibly could cure. I think also keeping somebody off androgen deprivation therapy, I think, is a win in and of itself. If you can do it, the patient likes it, and there's clearly adverse effects for androgen deprivation. So I think it really boils down to whether you think you can, and I think all of these options are sort of a little off the reservation. If you think you can get all the cancer out, I think I probably would try and remove it surgically, but I would have absolutely no problem with delivering radiation therapy. I don't think that I would leave it alone. I think I would do something with it. Yeah, so we did a, a salvage lymphadenectomy. I removed like 16 nodes, one of which was positive. Uh, and his PSA went to undetectable. So now what do you do? Does he need hormone therapy? Does he need radiation therapy to the nodal group up north from that? I don't know. <laughs> but, I mean, it's an individual case basis. I mean, if we're now just doing case series with these patients, we don't know. Uh, um, so one, one thing, the, the ASCO abstracts just came out this past week, and you can, you can take a look at them on, online, so, so I did that. And uh, th there was one from UCLA where the PSMA testing was used to drive the SPRT, and they just had PSA decline as an endpoint. And they actually did pretty well in nodal disease. I mean, they had a lot of PSA declines, and you know, does that really change the natural history? I think is a separate question, but I think there's progress being made, and it's nice to see that progress. Can I make one comment about the androgen deprivation? I, I would not treat him with androgen deprivation. I very much believe in the intermittent androgen deprivation story, and the guy has an undetectable PSA, has no metastatic disease, and if you can keep him off of hormones for a longer period of time, his quality of life will improve and it won't adversely affect his survival. So I, I would not start hormonal therapy. I think, I think that's true. I think you will keep people off of treatment. That prospective phase two study suggests that. So if the endpoint is quality of life, yes, then which, I think we can do Which that. is our goal in, in this. I mean, I'm not sure we're going to cure this guy, but potentially we can improve his quality of life. Yeah. Well, he's really happy that his PSA is undetectable. These guys have been waiting. It, this may be a similar question because it kind of begs what's the right treatment for oligometastatic disease, but is there... Uh, a group of patients where you might use your FACBC test to determine whether they're eligible for local treatment or not treatment. I had a hard time hearing uh, yeah, overall because of the sound. Uh, did you get it? 
I, I'm sorry, I did. I, it was it was hard to understand. Sorry, I'm working on a cold here. So, is there a set of patients where you would use your FACBC PET CT to rule a patient out for local therapy? Yeah. Yes. That, that, that definitely happened in this uh, treatment alteration trial that I'll be reporting tomorrow. Now, but, but the real question is, did we make the right decision? Mm -hmm. You know, we're changing what we do on the basis of these PET scan findings, but how do we know that the, the, the new treatment is better than the old treatment or that either treatment actually will make a difference? That's, that's what's unknown. I, I think the amazing thing about his study uh, and was it 60 or 80 percent of them that you changed? 60 percent you changed the plan. I'm amazed you're wrong 60 percent. I mean, think about what that says yeah. in the patients where you're not getting the imaging. That means that 60 percent of the time you're making the wrong decision, which is, uh, that's an incredibly high number. Incredibly well, but, but high. But it might just be a different decision. It may not be well, wrong. I mean, you know, we, we have to have a little more information. If, if, if we didn't have a PET CB, uh, the FACBC in this patient that I presented, uh, and uh, so he had had extracapsular extension, negative margin, negative nodes. Now a 0.25 detectable PSA. What would you have done? What would you have recommended to him? So you'd just recommend RT. Where? You do it to the prostate. You wouldn't do it to the area yeah. where the, the node light lit up. You do it to the prostatic bed. Right. So th yeah. this seems yeah. plausible that this is a better treatment than would have been done. But do we it's, know that? It's plausible. It's plausible. It's not proven. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if you had that test before he was treated. Well, there you go. Now, there are a lot of studies going on uh, to, to use PET to enhance staging of patients with high-risk disease. Mm -hmm. Like I said, it, pa patients to find their cancer, PET, PET imaging is being done to stage a diagnosed cancer, mm -hmm. uh, and, and as uh, has been alluded to, maybe just testing patients who have biochemical recurrence is the worst way to use a PET scan. There's a trial called the OSPI trial, which you know, no. it's got a very short readout. So you'll get that answer pretty quickly, what you're asking, within a and year or two. I guess it would depend on how many false negatives. Part of it might depend on how many false positives you get, where you'd say, oh, okay, we're not going to treat that guy. Or, no. Correct. One, one brief comment on the fluciclovine scan, the Aximan. You know, the FDA approval is in the recurrent disease in this initial staging, which is so tempting, is really a little bit of a data-free zone. I think the PSMA may be a little bit better there. So the, be a little bit wary about the aximan in the intact prostate staging, because we, we just don't have good data sets yet. So I, I was talking to a guy who said, uh, well, if I do focal therapy, and the guy's PSA rises, that's a, a local treatment failure, which is what the indication is now. If you do a radical or radiation and the PSA rises, that's treatment, that's yeah. biochemical recurrence, you could get an FACBC scan. He said, okay, I did focal ablation, the PSA is rising, now I want to get an FACBC no, I, scan. I, I, I don't, I don't. I don't really buy. I mean, I think you can probably get a. You can probably a order treatment. the test. You probably order the test under that guise, but I'm not sure that that's actually what the indication really is. I have, I have two questions. One's uh, more regarding low-grade prostate cancer, and those men that have been biopsy-proven and have low-grade prostate cancer. What would you? What would the panel recommend as far as the further testing to assure that he is not understaged? Well, I, I would ask what kind of biopsy he had. 
Because I have more confidence in some types of biopsies than others. 12 core biopsy. I have no confidence in that. So he needs an MRI okay. afterward to see if where the putative, in my view, where. Is that for further biopsy uh, or is it to have a, uh, with some positive predictive value that it is a low grade lesion and not a uh, Gleason 4? Well, yeah, he, he could have a, a Pyrads 4 or 5 lesion that's anterior, and my presumption would be that the transrectal biopsy that was done uh, is underestimating what's going on, and I'm going to probably steer him away from active surveillance or at least to a, a quicker follow-up biopsy that is MRI-targeted. There was a session just before this, which was, was eye-opening to me. I hadn't seen this data before, where they had Gleason 6 patients, about 1,000 of them. And they took, they did multi-parametric MRI and a PET scan, an Axiom PET. Then they took them to surgery. And if the MRI and the PET were both negative for any high-grade disease, there was still about a quarter of men who had Gleason grade 4 disease at prostatectomy. But if they were positive, it was something like 95%. So, so what it says is both of those, and they didn't break out which one did what. They just grouped them together. So it improves the, the ability to, to find grade 4 disease, as Dr. Andrew is saying. So, so yes. So I gather that, that, that. But they're not perfect. What, what needs to be done is a uh, imaging study with MRI just to rule out any uh, uh, unfound lesions, and number two, uh, gather more information via rebiopsy at some point. Yeah, so my standard algorithm is I get an MRI, if they haven't had an MRI, I get an MRI usually within the first six months afterwards. If the MRI shows an abnormality, I go ahead and I do a fusion biopsy right away, and in addition to a regular 12-core. If the MRI is negative, I push my confirmatory biopsy out to about a year. Now, I, that's exactly what I would do, get the MRI and do, you know, another biopsy. But somebody else might say, now, wait a second, there's a pivot trial out there that said this man was diagnosed on a sextant biopsy in the pivot era. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he was placed on observation, which is totally different than active surveillance. There was, they were blinded to their PSAs, okay? And, and at 10, 12 years, whatever the follow-up is now, for the, uh, the low grade, there's no difference. Yeah, but There's you, no you, you got to remember that a lot of comorbidities and, in right. that study. Well, okay, I'm, yeah, I'm it, talking it, up, guys. Yeah, talking it, up. Well, I just want to point out so that that population is not normal. The p-value on further follow-up is 0.06 for overall survival. <clears throat> in a group with comorbid illness, to me, that's a significant trial. Only half of the patients were alive <laughs> at 10 years. Yeah. I don't mean that was yeah. their Please, projected just, survival. Okay. Only half of them were and alive. And that brings up the point we're treating a patient, not just a prostate, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> My other question is, is, is what's, a, what's the understanding uh, of ambiraterone uh, mechanism of action and how it's effective in, in uh, prostate cancer versus uh, ketoconazole and prior to that aminoglutathamide, which showed activity mm -hmm. as well, uh, basically steroid inhibitors? Yeah, so, so the abiraterone's better at it, and, you know, but the mechanism of action for aminoglutathamide and ketoconazole pretty similar. Ketoconazole had more toxicity, but it just didn't hit the right enzyme. The, the two enzymes in the CYP17 complex are the 17-alpha-hydroxylase and the 17-20-ketoiase, and it turns out that abiraterone hits that 17-20-ketoiase pretty hard, better than the old drugs, and you just get more profound suppression.
and, and that does make a difference. You take at Kitty Connors all failures, you put them on Abby, and they, they can still have pretty nice responses. Oliver, while you're here, uh, tell me uh, what is your working uh, preference for either enzalutamide or apalutamide? You know, I don't have a lot of experience with the apalutamide yet, and you know what, what I'll say is that in my experience that the enzalutamide probably has a, a, a higher fatigue and alteration rate as compared to the Abbey. So if, if you just want to no, go... Apalutamide. Yeah, I, and, and apalutamide, I, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I don't know the answer. Can I comment? Yeah. We, yeah. we have a lot of neoadjuvant trials at, at our institution. We've used both enzalutamide and apalutamide, and I'd say the biggest difference is the fatigue issue. Uh, apalutamide doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, and the patients on enzalutamide have a staggering amount of fatigue, and the patients on apalutamide don't appear to have that. I mean, has that been That's your correct. experience as well? Because we're also using these drugs in combination with radiation therapy. I mean, we're, we really believe quite strongly that uh, the key is going to be multimodality therapy in these high-risk mm -hmm. patients. That's on the M0 castrate resistant, ca castrate sensitive state, where they examined both these drugs and both were presented at GUASCO. That held up less fatigue with apalutamide. Is bicalutamide dead? Well, in terms of level one evidence, no, we don't have it in, we can't, you know, when you mean radiation hormones and upfront disease, bicalutamide is still used routinely, right? We don't have Should it be used if you had apalutamide available? Cost the same? We don't have level one evidence yeah. yet. We will though. We will though. We have an enzalutamide study that's, that's complete. Uh, that a few years till we know what's going on. We have a study that's accruing very well, but it's, it's not, we don't, no data. Uh, afternoon, gentlemen. Thank you for the excellent uh, course today. Uh, a simpler question. We predominantly use MRI in a patient who's had a prior negative biopsy and rising PSA. And we find in our practice that a pyrads 4 or 5 in the transition zone is not as likely to yield cancers in the peripheral zone. And I've not ever seen in any studies or discussions when we're talking about the predictive value of MRI where they break it down between transition zone and peripheral zone. I just wonder if any of you have any comments on that. Great point. Yeah, so that's a very good point. So it has been looked at. Uh, the pyrads uh, classification in the transition zone is not reliable. That's the bottom line because the transition zone has a different biochemistry to it. So you can't use the same presumption in a, P, in a peripheral zone lesion with a pyrads 4 or 5 that you can in the transition. The transition zone just is not reliable. So then should we apply the same likelihood of rebiopsing a patient if it comes back as the pyrads 4 in the anterior transition zone? Should we you know, be as aggressive in terms of rebiopsing that fellow? No one's done a study on that in large numbers, but the answer, at least in our own group, is we don't biopsy transition zone based on pyrads. We do PZ, but not TZ. Well, it's 6.01. Do you have any other questions? Thank you for staying. Thanks for together here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.